0: Scripture says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. Jesus said, If you abide in My Word, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know He hears us, and whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of Him. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. As we begin to our service this morning in Bible study, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. We do that simply by privately confessing, admitting, acknowledging our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our own priesthood. And as we do that, God the Father forgives us. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is our teacher, our mentor, the one who makes it possible for us to truly understand the Word of God and to assimilate it into our souls so that with the final result that our thinking is transformed and our character is transformed into the image of Christ. So let us begin with a few moments of silent prayer for confession to make sure we're in fellowship with God and in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to gather together as a body of believers in order to learn your word, to worship you by studying your word, what you have taken the time, the effort, the energy to reveal to us. But we know that only by learning and assimilating your word into our thinking that we are able to glorify you, that we are able to grow and mature as believers and that we are able to see your work in our lives. So, Father, now as we come to Your Word, we pray that we would have an attitude that would allow ourselves to submit ourselves to Your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The subject I have chosen for this week is the subject of prayer. Prayer is the most powerful asset that the believer has in his spiritual life. Prayer is an awesome privilege that brings every believer immediately into the throne room of God into the presence of the Creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them. Prayer is the believer's vital communication link to his heavenly Father. Yet, for all that, very few believers are engaged in real biblical praying. Prayer is one of the most misunderstood and often most abused aspects of the Christian life. On the one hand, we find that many believers either neglect prayer... Or it's trivialized as a tool used to manipulate God, to somehow enter into a contract with God, to bargain with God, to try to get God to somehow conform His will to our will. The tragic result of this flawed approach to prayer is that most believers have superficial prayer lives at best and they aren't really sure that prayer does any good. And because of their ignorance, that's probably correct. Their prayers often don't get any higher than the ceiling. So in the next few hours, we're going to take some time to examine exactly what the Bible says about this critical aspect of prayer. As we approach this study, there's some goals and objectives that I hope we can accomplish. First of all, we're going to clarify exactly what the Bible delineates about prayer. And in the process, we're going to separate the sense from the nonsense about prayer. It's amazing today what some people think about prayer and what they communicate on prayer. You turn on the television and you watch a number of these television evangelists and you're just absolutely appalled at how they're they're bossing God around and, and dictating to God. And uh, this finds its way into the lives of many believers. Not too long ago I was or just since I was beginning to study for this, I ran into someone and we were talking and made the comment that I was going to I was asking what I was writing and starting about Thanksgiving, I started to uh, edit the uh, book that we have down at Baraka on prayer. And I made the comment that I was going to be doing this and her response was something along the lines of, well, you know, I just recently was at a prayer meeting and I heard this lady pray and suddenly she started, they were praying for a lady in the church who had been involved in an automobile accident and been terribly injured and all of a sudden she stood up and she said, God, I demand because of my faith that you heal this person. I was just appalled at the blasphemy of that. Yet this is something that's very common today. There's a tremendous amount of nonsense being taught about prayer. Second thing we want to accomplish is a realization of the incredible power of prayer. I think today we've lost sight of the fact that when we go to our Heavenly Father and go to the throne of grace, that is a tremendous tool that God has given us and gives us awesome power in our spiritual lives third thing we'll accomplish is to realize that prayer truly does change things. The Scriptures are clear that we have not because we ask not. That there are a multitude of blessings that God has in store for every believer that are contingent upon whether or not we come to God in prayer. And because we don't, because we neglect prayer, we're not really sure that God answers prayer, the result is that we do not experience those blessings that God has for us. I also want to do a couple of practical things give you some ideas that can stimulate your own personal prayer life as well as some ideas that would stimulate the church's prayer life. As far as procedures go, I want to just mention a few ideas that I have. First of all, as you search the, as we search the scriptures, you may get a little frustrated. We'll go from Genesis to Exodus to Samuel to Kings to John to 1st John, back to Romans, back to Proverbs, Psalms, Exodus again. Throughout this series, we'll just bounce from scripture to scripture, so have your Bible ready and handy and be ready to find things. And as we do that, you can highlight some of the significant verses and promises that we'll go to and sort of create a topical index in the margin. One thing I started doing years ago in my Bible is when I read read through through a page of Scripture and I see a particular topic addressed in that column, I'll just write a one-word comment at the top of the page, just write prayer. That way when I'm thumbing through trying to find something, I can just look at that top margin and quickly find things. Another thing that you can do is as we go from one passage to another, you can write in the margin the next scripture you're going to go to. That way you link these scriptures one with another and you can retrace that path later on in your own personal Bible study. In the course of this study, we're going to examine a lot of different passages from both the Old and New Testament. So don't get too frustrated with that procedure. And because of the scope of this study... I'm not going to have the opportunity to get into real detailed exegesis. There are a few times when we'll slow down and really take a passage apart, but for the most part, we're just going to hit it in the English and with a few brief explanations if there's any necessary on the Greek and the Hebrew, but we'll be moving fairly rapidly in order to get everything covered in the scope of this week. Uh, at the end of each session, I will try to summarize the key points that we've covered in terms of review. I think it's important most of us need to hear things at least 60, 70, or 80 times before it finally sinks into our our thick skulls. So don't get bored with the repetition. If you get bored, remember the person next to you is not quite as bright as you are, so they need that repetition. So uh, we'll get that covered. Uh, One one thing, if any of you have questions, what I'd like for you to do is take out a piece of notebook paper or whatever. Just write the question down, and then maybe at the end of the session, come up here and set it up here on the table or something like that and I will go through them. Questions that I will eventually cover uh, will be covered in the course of, of my talk and then uh, anything that you might that is asked, um, I'll either address it specifically in terms of a question or I'll make sure I cover it at some point. So if you have a question at the end of this hour and you bring it up here and I don't answer it this, later on this morning or tonight or tomorrow morning, I'll probably answer it Tuesday night or Tuesday morning at the ladies' class. We're still going to cover prayer the subject then will be 17 reasons why God doesn't hear your prayers. And so the men will want to make sure they get that tape later to make sure they're, uh, they're not following one of those uh, negative principles. Uh, one little bit of warning. When I use words like successful and effective prayer, I do not mean prayer that secures a yes answer from God. A successful prayer is a prayer that makes it to the throne of grace and may get a no for an answer but it's at least a prayer that doesn't bounce off the ceiling. And most believers are articulating prayers that don't get any higher than the ceiling wherever they are. So we want to make sure we at least present effective petitions that make it to the throne of grace. God always answers our prayers. He may say no, He may say maybe, He may say yes, but God always answers our prayers and when God says no, we need to quit praying about it. But for a while, sometimes God just wants to see if we're really interested in what we're praying about, so He tests us in terms of our willingness to persevere in the subject of prayer. Too many believers think, well, I asked God once, He's omniscient, He knows about it, why should I do it anymore? Well, just because the Scripture mandates that we are persistent in our prayers for any particular subject. And as we go through this conference, I'm going to make a number of practical suggestions that you can use and implement in your own prayer life. Now, that doesn't mean you need to do this. You have to do it this way. These are just some ideas. I remember when I was in seminary, they would always come up with these ideas of family prayer time and you ought to do this and you ought to do that. And, and for many people, those ideas just don't work because of their personality, because of their lifestyle, because of the demands of their job, because of whatever situation they're in. And guys would always get wrapped around the axle over some of these suggestions for having a, a family prayer time or prayer time with the kids. And, and it would just create so much tension within a family trying to accomplish these things because uh, when a guy was going to seminary, he'd be, he'd be in school many hours and then working another 20 or 30 hours during the week. And it was just very difficult to achieve many things. And so don't take these suggestions as some sort of absolute. They're just ideas to try to stimulate your own thinking into ways in which you can uh, try to have a richer, stronger, more consistent uh, prayer life in your own in your own Christian life. Okay, let's begin by looking at a definition. I think Aristotle once said that many many things can be avoided if we just have a clear and concise definition of what we're talking about. So we'll begin with a uh, definition and a description of prayer. What is prayer? First of all, the definition proper. Prayer is that grace provision. Of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Let me go over that again. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. One more time. Prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood, whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and and conduct intimate conversations with God. Christ described effective prayer as a mature believer's privilege to engage divine power in personal and historical circumstances. So prayer is a weapon for the strong, not some expedient or crutch for the weak. Except for the prayer of confession, which restores us to fellowship and recovers the filling of the Holy Spirit, all fellowship, I mean all effective prayer must be offered in fellowship with God. Scripture says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We must be in fellowship with God. Whenever the believer sins, we break fellowship with God and we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, except for uh, confession, we must pray in fellowship with God in order for God to hear us. Because the Father is the author of divine plan and the designer of the spiritual life, all prayer is addressed to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, provided our salvation, and opened the door to the throne room of God to each and every believer. Also, by way of introduction, another point, prayer can be either private or public. Public prayers can be be divided into prayer meetings or prayers for specific functions. In terms of prayers for specific functions, such as dedications or invocations, benedictions, blessing the food at mealtimes, and prayers like that, these prayers should be short and to the purpose at hand. I think we've all been at places where we bow our heads to bless the food and five minutes later somebody raises their eyes and sarcastically says, well, let's get on with the sermon. We know that some people take that time to thank God for everything under the sun and to make sure they get their points in about theology while everybody else is growing more and more hungry and the food's growing colder. We want to make sure that when you pray, pray publicly. Take the time. Realize what you're praying for and pray for it and close and finish. It doesn't have to be long. God is not impressed with our long-windedness, even though we may think we're impressing other people spiritually by being able to pray for a long time. So public prayers should be short. Now, another point about prayer meeting. Now, some folks just feel uncomfortable about praying out loud in a prayer meeting. I find that more often than not, that's motivated by fear. You're, you're scared, you're shy, you not. You don't really want to talk out in front of people, which is one of the most common fears among all people, is a fear of getting up in front of people. Yet, if you're motivated by fear in anything in, in your life, you're motivated by sin. And so, if you go into a prayer meeting with other people, uh, just try to overcome that fear. Trust God, claim fear promises, take the time just utter a, a brief prayer, but learn to be comfortable. Take that as a challenge, an opportunity to trust God, and to learn to pray together. There's tremendous uh, emphasis in the Scriptures with believers coming together and praying together. And I remember when I was probably 13 or 14 years old, I worked at a Christian camp during the summer, and the staff would get together and pray, and I you know it took a long time before I really got up the nerve to pray publicly. But at first I began just, you know, with just a sentence or two, and then you become more and more comfortable. But take that as a challenge and don't be motivated by, by a fear. To open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. A couple of promises and instructions that God gives us, that, that Jesus Christ gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. I'll give you a moment to turn to it. Matthew is the first gospel. Jesus said, in giving instructions to his disciples about prayer, he said, when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Jesus points out that there were many who pray publicly. And their point is, let's impress people. And somehow if we impress people, we'll impress God. Or somehow by what they say in their brilliance of their articulation and their uh, prayerful oratory, they're going to impress God and somehow get God's uh, positive, gracious response. You never earn grace. Grace is a free gift of God and man can do nothing to impress God by his own works. And Jesus said to them, but you, when you pray, go into your inner rooms. I think the King James said, go into your closet. Just go into a very private room. You're not there to impress people. You're not there to be seen by people. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will repay you. Now, the concept here that your father who sees in secret will repay you is not that somehow you're earning something from God, but the contrast is to the reward that the hypocrite gets in six five. It's a self-reward. He's praying to be seen by men, so he gets his reward. And here, your father who sees you in secret will repay you. How will he repay you? He will repay you by listening to you. And he does not listen to the hypocrite. So, if you want to um, uh, have a prayer that is effectively heard by God the Father then it should not be motivated by a desire to impress God or to impress men, but a desire simply to have private conversation with God the Father. Today, we must not confuse prayer with many of the mystical notions that are popular today. Mysticism is one of those funny terms that's very difficult to define. It's sort of like trying to nail jello to the wall. But I'll do my best. Mysticism defines spirituality totally within subjective and emotional terms mysticism builds itself upon some sort of subjective experience that someone has that can't have any objective verification God spoke to me well how do you know God spoke to you I just know it because it feels like it well how can you challenge that with any objective data you can't challenge anybody's experience somebody had an experience the issue is not what experience did they have the issue is is their experience what they're interpreting it to be. People have all kinds of experiences and you can never challenge a person's experience. You can only challenge their interpretation of that experience. Mysticism entices the undiscerning with empty promises of a deeper, more meaningful spirituality, a sense that they have come into the very presence of God, that God has somehow joined Himself or united Himself with the individual in some richer, deeper way that makes them feel so much Better so much life would be such a richer experience. Under this delusion, mystics uh, seek this closer union, this close personal encounter with God, and they often claim that God speaks directly to them, or that angels or divine beings appear to them. And we see a lot of this emphasis today in our culture. This emphasis on angels appearing to people. And there's go down to even to Christian bookstores, and there are all kinds of very flaky books on angels and how angels have appeared to people and television shows that that talk about angels and what angels are doing to helping people. And all of this is a product of the mystical spirituality that is sweeping our nation. This false spirituality generates a lot of emotions that the mystic then uses to evaluate his own spirituality. You know, it depends on... You have this emotion and that then makes you feel so warm and fuzzy and good that everything after that is evaluated on the basis of having, that, having generated that same kind of emotion. So the mystic gets on this uh, cyclical uh, event where he continually tries to one-up his previous emotional experience and the focus then becomes his emotion and not what he's doing objectively with God. Uh, Eastern mysticism has had a tremendous inroads in this country in recent years. You've had the rise of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism... Uh, the New Age movement, all of this reduces God to an impersonal force. Now, I want you to think about this. If God is reduced to an impersonal force rather than a person, then prayer is no longer a conversation with a personal being. You're now having a conversation with nothing that's there. It's just an impersonal force. So, prayer becomes uh, merely a conversation with oneself. It's nothing more than self-reflection, the contemplation of one's own thoughts or experiences and emotions. And spirituality then becomes nothing more than the emotion generated by a person's own subjective experiences. And that's where we are today. Uh, For the last eight or ten years, this concept of spirituality has has dominated things. You go into bookstores, they have books on spirituality. Well, what kind of spirituality is it? And that's what it is. It's this... How to have this contemplative experience where you're really just reflecting on your own experience and your own person and have that generate some sort of sense of euphoria and that's what's defined as spirituality so spirituality becomes associated with a feeling it's subjectivism at it's very worst and this is destructive to the individual and I think ultimately will destroy the fabric of our culture and society Spirituality is no longer measured by objective things such as the filling of the Holy Spirit or a person's personal growth in knowledge of the Word of God, knowledge of doctrine, and uh, his manifestation of Christ-like character and uh, the fruits of the Spirit. Christian mysticism sees prayer often as the elevation of the mind to God. It is uh, uh, viewed subjectively as a revelation of an interior illumination rather than the intervention of God into the very warp and woof of human history. So, in this kind of a concept, the mystics often talk about a ladder of prayer or stages of prayer. And in that concept, a petition is often considered the lowest stage. The highest stage is just some sort of contemplation where there's no real content to it at all. There's just sort of almost an emptying of the mind. And that is something that has more to do with with uh, Eastern mystical uh, meditation than it does with the biblical concept of prayer. Biblical praying is conversation with God, not contemplation of one's own life. Contemplation is nothing more than subjectivity, and that often in mystical environments culminates in ecstasy. Now, ecstasy is this, this uh, experience, this subjective experience of elation that a person has and it's very prominent, especially in charismatic churches today. We see in charismatic churches the merger of mystical, Christi- mystical forms of, with Christianity. And that's why charismatics often end up espousing tongues as some form of prayer language. They contemplate God, they have this ecstatic experience, and then they begin to speak in a prayer language. And that's how they redefine what the Bible says about tongues. Tongues in the Scripture is speaking in known human languages, for the purpose of communicating doctrine and it was a temporary gift given in the early years of the church that died out by 70 AD because its primary purpose was a witness to Israel that God was getting ready to take the Jews out under the fifth cycle of discipline and so at the 70 AD when Jerusalem fell to the Roman armies under Titus then the gift died out and there was no more example of the biblical gift miraculous gift of speaking in human languages that the speaker never had learned before and this is forbidden in our next verse in Matthew six, seven. Look at that. Jesus said, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this often is taken to mean that meaningless repetition is the idea of, of ritual prayer, where you just say the same prayer over and over again, like in some churches they repeat the Lord's prayer. What's this. Was mistakenly called the Lord's Prayer, over and over again. And uh, that's not what this word means. The Greek word here is bata logia. I'm going to see if I can use this overhead. Bata logia. It's a compound word, so I'm going to separate it here. B-A-T-T-A logia. L-O-G-I-A. Now this word, logia, is... The same root as lagos, meaning the word or to speak. Bata is just a meaningless word, an onomatopoeic word that, that describes someone speaking gibberish. Bada And so this was an onomatopoeic word that means to utter senseless sounds or to speak indistinctly and incoherently, to babble incoherently. That's according to the Loynida lexicon of the Greek language. So Jesus is saying, and when you are praying, do not utter senseless sounds or speak incoherently or babble. That's what he's saying. Now, doesn't that apply directly to the whole concept of a prayer language for the, for the charismatics? Jesus specifically forbids the use of gibberish in prayer. And he says, if this is what the Gentiles do. Now, it's very popular at this time in the, in the Greek and Roman world to be involved in what was called the mystery religions. In the mystery religions, you would go up to some special designated site where you would have, uh, usually there would be a lot of dancing and there would be a lot of singing and the use of music and, and they would work themselves up into a frenzy. And at the very height of this, this emotional experience and this frenzy, they would have this ecstatic experience and they would claim that the God entered into them and they spoke with, um, in, in gibberish. And this was viewed as the highest form of spirituality among these devotees of the of the mystery religions, because at that point, the God was using them to utter his truth. Now, that idea, if you came out of a Gentile background, and you came into Christianity, and you weren't taught, you brought that idea of spirituality with you. And that was the problem in the, in the church at Corinth, because they were Corinth was one of the centers of the mystery religions in the ancient world. So Jesus is uh, making a specific point here, Do not follow the examples of the Gentiles, especially in the mystery religions. Do not get sucked into these forms of mysticism in your prayer life. So Jesus warns specifically against subjective emotion dominating our prayers. Now, we must realize that prayer, to a certain degree, is a subjective experience. It's something that's very private. It's something that takes place in your own soul, in the privacy of your own soul. And often it involves a tremendous amount of emotion, simply because at certain times in our lives we're caught up in in difficult situations, we're caught up in a lot of pressure, we're caught up uh, perhaps in uh, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching situations, and we are in an emotional state. But the focus in prayer is never, in the Scriptures, is never on emotion. We're going to look at a number of psalms during the next uh, uh, two or three days and we're going to see the tremendous emotion that underlies the psalm that David was, was was experiencing at the time he prayed but that's never the focus of the psalm it's never the focus of the prayer the prayer always focuses on the problem and on God on the character of God and the power of God to solve the problem and then on how God resolved the problem nevertheless David is tremendously emotional at the time because of his circumstances but that's not the focus so we're not saying there's no emotion whatsoever. We're all emotional beings. It's, not, it's to not let emotion dominate or focus or be the focus or even be a criterion of our prayer life. And Just another word of warning here. At some point when people start praying together, someone always starts getting a little emotional or subjective. I think many of us have been in prayer groups with other Christians where we've seen that sort of thing and they start saying things like God is speaking to them or, Oh, while I was praying, God, I just felt God lead me to do this or to say this. And someone then gets excited and um, God is leading them to do this or to do that or speaking to them. And they start putting an emphasis on how Christ is speaking to them in their hearts. And uh, always when people start talking about Christ in their heart and how uh, God is leading them in this way, you always know that you're, you're headed into trouble. Nowhere does the Bible ever use the word heart to refer to emotion. This is one of the common misconceptions you'll hear people talk about. Well, you shouldn't have just a head faith. You should have a heart faith. Well, in the Scriptures, the word heart, which is cardia in the Greek in the New Testament and Lathe in the Old Testament in Hebrew, primarily refers to the innermost part of man. And this is common even in English. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, uh, heart, one of the meanings for heart, other than the physical organ that pumps blood through the body, one of the meanings for heart is the central or innermost physical part of a place or region. So when the Bible speaks of, uses the word heart, in many contexts, it's never referring to, to the emotion. It is referring to the innermost part of a person's soul. And the way I like to uh, diagram this is with a couple of concentric circles. Here is the heart, the innermost part of the mentality of the soul, and out here we have the mind which in the Greek is called the nous. So I I take it that, that heart is the innermost part where your true beliefs and thinking reside. When you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and we learn doctrine and we accept it by faith and assume, and the Holy Spirit it teaches it to us, uh, it is transferred from gnosis out here in the mind, it is transferred into the most inner part of our souls, the heart, where it then becomes epinosis. Epinosis is that doctrine that is usable and profitable for our own spiritual growth. And the heart has nothing to do whatsoever with emotion. It has to do with the thinking part, the, the deepest part of our soul where thought takes place. John 15, 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me, which is talking about fellowship, and my words abide in you, which is talking about understanding doctrine and having that as the as the part, deepest part of our of our soul and the mentality of our soul then ask what you will and it shall be done to you we want to avoid a couple of extremes in our Christian life which I find to be very common one is the neglect of prayer this is a result of believers who get so caught up in the sovereignty of God that God is in control and God is on mission he knew everything from eternity past therefore God is going to do whatever is necessary so so prayer I don't really need to pray because God already knows what I need they, they take promises that God where God says that He knows the desires of our heart and knows what we're going to pray for even before we pray it. So if God already knows it, why should I pray for it? doesn't that make sense? So they don't pray. They neglect prayer. On the other extreme, you have the high emotionalism and subjectivity in prayer. We want to avoid that extreme. And then a third extreme is ritual prayer. And ritual prayer while sometimes can be good because... Uh, prayer, especially in the old days, I used to have a collection, in fact, I was going to bring it and I never could find it. I had a collection of old Puritan prayers. And there's something positive about the written prayers that they use because they put a tremendous amount of thought into what they were going to pray. I mean, if you're going to get into the very presence of God, I'm not going to go in there and just go off the cuff with God. I want to make sure that if I'm going to present a petition to God, I'm going to present a well-crafted organized petition, and we'll see that that's exactly what biblical writers did as well. They thought about what they were going to pray for. That doesn't mean that there's no room for a spontaneous prayer. But often they would they would take the time to really think through what they were going to pray for. And then the bad part of that was they continued to pray that same prayer over and over again to where it lost its meaning. But today, in the context of the rise of mysticism in many of our churches, what happens is that the uh, ritual prayer becomes... Uh, becomes another means of promoting that mystical experience. You just say the same prayer over and over again and it sort of, your mind just blanks out and you get elevated into this sort of ritual experience. So by way of introduction then, I want to conclude with about uh, five or six points. First of all, we want to remember the definition. Prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express our adoration and praise to God, to give thanks, to intercede for others, and to convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. Secondly, you do not pray to become spiritual. You pray because you are spiritual. Spirituality is the result of being filled with the Spirit in one sense, And in another sense, as you are filled with the Spirit and you learn doctrine and apply it in your lives, you grow. So there's two senses to spirituality. One is an absolute sense, which refers to the fact that you're filled with the Spirit or not. You're either spiritual or carnal. Another way in which we use the word spirituality is referred to a person who is more mature spiritually. Prayer is a result of spiritual growth, not a cause of spiritual growth. Prayer is a privilege of your priesthood. Therefore, to develop the ability to pray and to pray effectively, you must first grow spiritually. Your prayer life is no stronger than your spiritual life. People always confuse the results of spirituality with the causes of spirituality. Prayer is a function of the priesthood of the believer. Giving is a function of the believer's ambassadorship. Witnessing is a function of the believer's ambassadorship. Using your spiritual gifts as a function of the believer's ambassadorship, are the results of spiritual growth, not the cause. People always get those reversed. You go to many churches and they operate on some form of legalism. If you pray, you give, you use your spiritual gifts, then you're going to grow spiritually. Those have nothing to do with spiritual growth. They have to do with the consequences of your spiritual growth. As you learn doctrine and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the consequence of that is that you will pray you will give. You will utilize your spiritual gifts. Just as you grow up physically and as you mature emotionally, uh, you begin to discover that you have certain talents and certain interests and you begin to pursue those. You, you learn about certain things and those are the things that you do and that's how you discover your talents and your gifts naturally. The same thing is true in the spiritual life. People get caught up and wrapped around the axle on what their spiritual gift is. But I think that's the wrong focus. The focus is grow spiritually. As you mature And as as you are transformed from the inside out, then the consequence is that your spiritual gift will begin to manifest itself naturally in your walk with the Lord. You do not pray to be spiritual. You pray because you are spiritual. Third point, by way of introduction. Prayer demands concentration and thought. Prayer is not a mindless activity. While emotion may be present, that is never the focus or the issue in your prayer. Prayer relies on doctrine and fact, not on emotion and subjectivity. Prayer demands concentration and thought. Fourth point, prayer should be the highest priority in your life after learning Bible doctrine. If intercession is the highest priority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit during this church age, a point that we will cover, I think, Monday night is the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, then we should make it a high priority in our lives. If Jesus and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding with God the Father for every believer, then we should also make that a priority in our lives. Fifth, as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. We do not understand the will and the plan of God. We do not understand the whys and the wherefores, the do's and the don'ts that relate to prayer. We do not understand how to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And so because we fail in our spiritual lives, our prayers fail. And six, prayer should be the highest priority of your spiritual life next to doctrine. And why is that? Because the second area I wish to cover this morning is the mandate in the Scriptures to pray. We pray because we are commanded to pray. Three verses we're going to look at are 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Colossians 4.2, and Romans 12:12. 12, 12. Prayer is not an option for the believer in his spiritual life, but a mandate as part of his royal priesthood. Therefore, the question you should be asking yourself is not should I pray, but <clears throat> how should how should I pray? How do I pray correctly? You shouldn't be asking the question does prayer work? You should ask the question how do I pray according to the scriptures? Remember God has given us precise instructions in his word about everything in the spiritual life. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. So we have to pray according to the instructions of scripture. First verse we're going to look at is 1st Thessalonians 5:17. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. I'm going to learn how to use this eventually. 1 Thess 5.17. This is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Only two words. In the English, we have three words. Pray without without ceasing. The word for pray is the present middle imperative of the Greek word pros-eukamai. P-R-O-S-E-U-C-H-O-M-A-I. It's a present middle imperative. Now, this is important, and uh, I don't always do this with every... every, um, Every verb and all the way through when I teach. But at critical times, it's important to understand the grammatical breakdown because there are certain nuances to each of these things in the Greek language. The present refers to the, the tense. The, the uh, middle refers to the mood. Now, in Greek, you have a middle voice. Middle voice is often a, the simplified as just the reflexive voice. If you say, I hit the ball, that's using an active voice. I hit. The subject is I and I perform the action of the verb. If you say, the ball was hit by me, that's using a passive voice. I'm still hitting the ball, but we're looking at it, the ball was hit. The ball then because it becomes the subject, and the emphasis is on the ball as the receiver of the action. But if you use a middle voice in Greek, you would say, I hit the ball. <clears throat> You'd be saying, I hit the ball to myself, or I hit myself with the ball. The emphasis is on its reflexive action. Sometimes it can be, I hit the ball and it was for my benefit. There are various nuances there. It has to do with the action of the verb, and its uh, impact upon the one who performs the action now the present tense here indicates customary or habitual action it's called a nomic present or customary present and it indicates customary or habitual action an action that regularly occurs in an ongoing state so this this combined with the imperative command a present imperative indicates a command to to carry on an action continually, the idea of making something a habit in your life. So the present imperative indicates making this a, a habit, that this should be a regular action in your spiritual life. self or in his or her own interest. So it is in the best interest of the believer to make prayer a habit. The word here, prosukamai, is a general word for prayer or making a petition. It is not a. Uh, there's nothing uh, unique about that, or anything that differs from the English word prayer. Primarily, though, in the Greek, it is used only of prayer to God. Uh, in secular Greek, it might be made of a petition to a ruler, but in the Bible, it's used only of prayer to God. God, and it carries a connotation of reverence and respect. One of the things that we should do when we pray is remember that we are praying to God, who is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who created everything. He is the uh, one who sent His Son to die on the cross for us. And we can come to Him only because of what He has done for us. And too often today we find believers who want to trivialize prayer and they just sort of rush headlong into the throne room of God, treating God somewhat irreverently and carelessly as if Jesus is their good buddy. And I think we, we need to come back a little bit away from that while there is a closeness there, God is our Father, and there is an intimacy there in the believer's life, we ne- need to remember who God is. There is something of, of reverence there and respect for the authority of God and who He is as the Creator and who we are as the creature. The second verse I want to look at that has to do with the mandate of prayer and the importance of prayer in the believer's life is Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2, we have uh, the command, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now the Greek word that we have here is pros kartereo. Long Greek words. Pros kartereo. P r o s k a r t u r e o. Pros kartereo. And it means to continue to do something with intense effort and with a possible implication in the Word of doing it despite any difficulty. To devote yourself to something, to keep on, to persist in it no matter what the obstacles might be, no matter what the difficulty might be and to do it with an intensity, with an effort. In other words, you need to make prayer a priority in your life. Devote devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. The parsing of the verb is the same as we had earlier. It's a present active imperative. It's a habitual present. It is an active voice, meaning the believer's volition chooses to make this a priority in his life, and it's an imperative. It means it mandates this action to be an ongoing process in the believer's life. And one other verse that mandates prayer is Romans 12.12, uh, 12, which we won't take the time to look at right now. I want you to turn again in your Bibles with me to Acts 2.42, and we're going to find another use of this word, proskartereo, which emphasizes that prayer should be the highest priority in the believer's life next to learning doctrine. Acts 2.42. The context of Acts 2.42 is it's the day of Pentecost, which was a great day, and it just sort of uh, summarizes and describes what happens after the birth of the church, and you had it. Uh, Several thousand people trust Christ as their Savior. And it says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the verb translated continually devoting is our friend pros a present active participle. Uh, They are continually devoting themselves to prayer. This was their highest priority to uh, teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, to most people, they look at this list, And they say, well, they were devoting themselves to to four things. Wrong. This is not a list of four things. It's a list of two things followed by an appositional phrase. The two things they devoted themselves to were to the apostles' teaching, which is learning doctrine, and to fellowship. That's not fellowship with one another. It's fellowship with God. And the term fellowship is further defined by the appositional phrase breaking of bread, which is the Lord's table, which is fellowship with God, and prayer. Which is fellowship with God. So we learn from the appositional phrase that the fellowship here is not fellowship with other believers because fellowship with man does not improve your spiritual life. Fellowship with God is what improves your spiritual life. Their priority was twofold. It was the apostles teaching and fellowship with God. Fellowship with God specifically emphasized as communion, the Lord's table, and prayer. So what were the priorities of the believers under the apostles leadership? One, the study, A Bible doctrine. And two, prayer. Four principles then in summary. One, prayer is the result of your spiritual growth. It is not the cause of your spiritual growth. Two, prayer is not an option for the believer. It is a mandate for the believer. Three, prayer is to be habitual. This should be a regular habit. Setting aside a specific time period on a daily basis in order to pray prayer is to be habitual not just in terms of maybe once a day but throughout the day constantly shooting one liners to the throne of grace prayer is to be habitual fourth the believer should pursue his prayer life with an intensity that overcomes any and all obstacles doctrine is your number one priority you should organize your entire life so that you are able to to learn doctrine, because only doctrine transforms you into the character of Jesus Christ and matures you spiritually. And prayer is the number two priority in your life. Now that we've finished these introductory matters, we're going to tackle the first subject. And that has to do with the relationship of grace to prayer. Prayer is orientation to the grace of God, or another way of putting this, how to approach the throne of grace So we don't get booted out. Many people think or under the misconception that anybody can pray. Anybody has access to God. And that's the result of our screwy, democratic, egalitarian ideas that have dominated American culture. I remember about 15 or 20 years ago, there was a man by the name of Bailey Smith who was pastor of a large Baptist church in Oklahoma who was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And somewhere in the course of his election to be president of the Baptist Southern Baptist Convention, some reporter asked him a question and they just crucified him. They asked him if God heard the prayers of Jews. And Bailey Smith responded by saying, No, God does not hear the prayers of Jews and that made front page copy in every newspaper in America and the nuance was that he was anti Semitic and that he just, how could he make the statement that God wouldn't listen to to just anybody's prayer. So a question we have to resolve is, does God just listen to anybody's prayer? Or are there certain things that must take place before God's going to listen to somebody? Before we go to prayer, we have to make sure, first of all, that we are admissible to the throne room of God. And secondly, we have to see that our and be assured that our petition is valid. Otherwise, we can't really pray in faith, can we, if we're not too confident of our own petition. And for the most part this morning the remainder of this session and the next session, we're going to talk about this whole subject of how do I know that I am admissible to the throne room of God. And in this, the rest of this session, we're going to talk about how man has been excluded from the presence of God. So turn with me to the first book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Genesis three, twenty-four. Often when we study Scripture, it's important to look at the first occurrence of a subject in order to gain a proper perspective of that entire subject. And while prayer is an intimate communion, I mean intimate conversation and communication with God the Father, it is often a one-way communication today. The first time we have evidence of communication with God though in the scriptures with Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden. Now one of the things that took place in the garden was that every day Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And he would conduct a uh, little bible class there he would instruct Adam and Eve in a lot of different things he would teach them. i imagine this went on for years as they went around they said well god why did you why did you create this what, what's the function of this how, how do we do this how do, how do we grow this uh, god commanded them to guard and tend the garden but he had to give them instructions on uh, you know how to use the the rake and how to use the rototiller and, and what kind of manure to put down whatever it was and and uh, They were constantly asking God questions and He would give them answers and He would instruct them. So one of the things we would see from that is that that God wasn't coming down and saying, Well, Adam, how do you feel today, Adam? Is everything going okay? It wasn't a man-centered, anthropocentric conversation. The focus was on God and what God was doing through man and what man was supposed to do to fulfill the expectations and commands and mandates of God. Well, man failed in fulfilling the one mandate or prohibition in the garden, which was to eat from the, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there were certain consequences to man's sin. After the fall, they lost their fellowship with God. Now, why were they condemned? They were condemned because of the character of God. We see that God is, in His character, He is perfect righteousness, and He is absolute Justice. And the principle is that what the righteousness of God condemns, the justice of God judges. The righteousness of God provides the standard by which God judges. So the right what the righteousness of God condemns, the justice of God judges. So if righteous God had to condemn man because he became a sinner and disobedient to God and perfect God who is perfect cannot have fellowship with anyone who is not perfect. The result was the judgment of God. The question then is how do sinful human beings get back into the presence of God? There's always the smart aleck unbeliever who wants to ask the question, how can a loving God send his creatures to hell? In fact, that's probably the question that Satan challenged God with in the prehistoric angelic conflict. But the next time you have a conversation with an unbeliever and you're witnessing to them and they ask you that, your response should be, well, I'll answer that question, but first, you tell me how can a holy, righteous God let a sinner into heaven? Turn the tables on him. We'll come back to the question of salvation later on this morning, but right now I just want to focus on the issue of man's exclusion from the presence of God. In Genesis 3.24 We say, So he, God, drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim. Now, cherubim are an order of angels. They're not little babies with wings that you see uh, painted in uh, Renaissance uh, artwork. They are some of the mightiest, most powerful of all of the angels. They're the angels that are almost always associated with the holiness and righteousness of God throughout Scripture. And here they are stationed at the borders of Eden in order to keep man from the presence of God and, they, and the cherubim it's plural in the I-M ending in uh, Hebrew means plural so there are many cherubs located around the garden of Eden and they have a flaming sword uh, turning in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life so man is excluded and here we have the case of the flaming sword which keeps man from the presence of God and from eternal life Now, I want you to get this picture in your mind. Here you've been, Adam and Eve, and you've been with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Garden of Eden for years probably. You have enjoyed day-to-day fellowship with God where you've had every question answered and you've had this tremendous, unimaginable relationship with God. And now, you're kicked out. And the same person that you have spent every day with in close relationship has cut himself off completely from you. You cannot go to him. They are standing there outside the boundary and they can barely see Jesus Christ because of the bright flame surrounding the garden excluding them completely from the presence of God. So we have this dynamic picture here in Genesis of man's exclusion from the presence of God. Now turn with me to the next book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. You might want to mark your place in Exodus 19. We'll go ahead and close in prayer and uh, then we'll have time for our break. And then we'll come back and continue to talk about prayer and man's exclusion from the presence of God when we come back from the break. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the instructions that you give us in Scripture for the for the whole subject of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come to you in prayer, to come into your very presence as believers in this church age. This unique privilege that believers in other dispensations did not have. That we can come directly into your presence because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And we know that you hear us. And that if we pray on the basis of faith, and if we abide in your word, and your word abides in us, that you will hear our petitions. And Father, as we continue with our study of prayer, I pray that each of us would be challenged in our own spiritual life, that we would gain a greater appreciation of prayer and a greater appreciation for the need and the necessity of prayer. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.